So glad to be here with you today. My name is Mike Rutledge, and uh, we're continuing our series called Winning the War in Your Mind, which is taken straight from a book of the same title by Craig Grishel, who's uh, lead pastor at a really, really thriving church in Oklahoma, multiple sites, I think some in Texas as well. Uh, so I say that because if you love what I have to say, give him credit. If you disagree, write them the letter, okay? So... <laughs> Uh, just, just, you should know that. But uh, if you haven't read the book, I can't even emphasize how important this book will be for every single person, no matter where you are in your journey on mental health, spiritual mental health, wherever you are. It's a tremendous book. So I'm excited to talk about it. We've talked about the first week, what, what we, we call the replacement principle. And that's where we look to find lies in our, li- in, in, in our heads that we believe and replace those lies with truth. And then the second week, we talked about the rewiring principle, which is taking our brains and rewiring ruts or thought pathways that we've created over time and replacing those pathways with healthy, positive pathways. Last week, this isn't from the book. We got to hear from a panel of medical and psychological professionals who shared key insights into mental health and into ways to manage the way we think and the way we process thoughts. If you didn't see that, go on the app or the website, check it out. It's just really valuable stuff. Today, we're going to be talking about what we call the reframing principle. And before I even just go into all detail, I just want to share a little story that I think will be helpful. I want you to imagine you're walking. Today was such a nice day. You got up this morning and you put your your earbuds in and you're cranking your favorite Kenny G song and you're walking. You're you're just uh, just unaware of anyone around you because you're just in your moment, right? And uh, you're walking across the street. Kenny G's wailing away in your head. And out of nowhere, some guy comes and just blasts you and tackles you, sends you flying five feet through the air. You scuff your body across the cement, and you're laying there going, I hope I didn't break something. Your first reaction about that guy is, what's wrong with him? You don't tackle people in the street. But the second you learn that if he had not done that, a bus was going to run you down, Your perspective on that event in your life is radically different, and your perspective on that person is radically different. Let me give you even a more personal example. Our oldest son, Elijah, is 24 now. When he was three, it was Christmas Day. He was three, and we got up that morning, and we started to open our presents. And well, you know what it's like with kids to open presents, right? (laughs) But for some reason, he didn't have that zeal. He just seemed kind of lethargic and lazy. And halfway through, we hadn't even finished, and he just said, I want to go back to sleep. And we checked his head, and it seemed like maybe he's getting a little bit of a fever. So we said, okay, let's let's go back. We're going to finish opening without you. No, we didn't say that. (laughs) We we sent him back to bed, and we go, hey, we'll wait for you. And so he went back, and he fell right asleep. And so we checked on him in a little bit. And when we checked on him, he was a raging fire monster of fever, sweating, soaked through. And we're like, holy smokes, we need to get him to the doctor now. So we took him to the doctor. And uh, we bring him in. And they're like, holy smokes, he's a raging fire monster of sweat. And they said, we've got to get his temperature down right now. And so what they did is they said, we're going to, we, we want to strip him all of his clothes off of him. And they put him on this, this like metal table like a cadaver table it looked like to me. And they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pack him in ice and wet, cold towels. 
Dad, here's your job. Hold him down. Well, as we're doing that, he's crying. He feels terrible, and we're delivering more pain to him. His perspective, and here's what he said to me at one point. He said, he's crying, please stop, Dad, stop, Dad, please, Dad, I promise I'll be good. And we barely, we rarely did that for punishment to our kids. <laughs> so I was surprised to hear him say that. <laughs> we didn't do that to our kids. I'm joking. Okay, just to be clear. <laughs> anyway, but his perspective in his mind was, I got a good family, but right now, this situation is not good, and I have negative thoughts about what's going on. And I believe that every single person in this room, if you take a second and think, you could find something in your life where your brain gravitates to a negative thought or perception about a relationship you have or something that's happening in your life an experience or a circumstance. And as we go through the day, I would like you to think specifically about that because I want today to be a very practical opportunity for you to understand how to reframe your thinking into godly thinking. Because here's what we know about our minds. That our mind is a battlefield and the battles are won or lost here in our head. In other words, the life you have is often a reflection of the thoughts you think. And what comes out in our life is a result of what we think in our head. And if you have negative thoughts, it can become almost impossible to have a positive life. You know, the Bible has lots to say about this. And in 2 Corinthians 10, it says this about our mind and our thinking. This is just a fantastic verse. It says this, For we live in the world, but we do not wage war as the world does. We don't fight fire with fire. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what does it say here? The weapons we use as followers of Jesus aren't humanly strong or weak. We have divine power, supernatural power. And what do those, what do those weapons do? They demolish pretension. What's pretension? Pretension is something that says it's one thing, but it's actually something else. And these pretensions specifically try and keep us, it says, from knowing God. And so what we need to do, it says, is take the thought you have that you're thinking and make sure it's in agreement with what God says. That's the weapon we have. And over the past few weeks, we've been learning about the power of the mind. And one of the things we've come to understand is that the more often, we, we have these things that like uh, the way your brain works is that when you think a thought, uh, you create a pathway or a, a way of thinking. A, a, you can think of it as like a, a mental rut. You've been on that road, you know, where the tire ruts are so deep, that's all you get to drive in. Well, our brains are kind of like that too. Once you think a thought, the more you think that thought, the more likely you are to think that thought and the easier it becomes to think that thought. And that is called a cognitive uh, bias, 
because you've had this thought, you continue to think this thought, your brain's telling you this is the rut, stay in it, just follow it. So a cognitive bias would be a mistake. Oh, let, me, let me just tell you this. Like, here's, a way to think, here's another way to think of it. Um, you have thoughts, you think the thought, and you continue to think that thought, and it becomes regular. When I was like 25 or something, I uh, was driving home from work one day, and I decided to stop at Taco Bell. I ate and immediately felt exorcist sick. My head is spinning. I'm projecting across the room as I'm vomiting for like three days. It was terrible. The very thought of Taco Bell made my head want to start spinning again. I waited like three years, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to try it again. I ate a Taco Bell, and I, my head starts spinning, and I projectile vomiting across the room. It's terrible. Guess what I think about Taco Bell? And that's the way that it happens when you're dealing with cognitive biases. If you grew up in a family, or if you grew up where something really bad happened to you, you might have a filter or a framework where you see things inaccurately because of your experiences. You know, if you grew up with abusive, hurtful men in your life, we know that not all men are hurtful and abusive, but you may be, because of your cognitive bias, prone to think of men as hurtful and abusive, right? Here's the thing. If we can think differently about our experiences, though the facts don't change, the way we process the facts can change. So I want to I wanna just talk with you today about how we can have proper filters. And by the way, you guys have all done this, right? Here's a good way to think about filters, right, uh, on your social media. You want to post a picture, but you think you need to drop 15 before you do. Run it through that filter. You want the booty back? Drop it through that filter. You want to look like a, a, a bunny rabbit or something? I've seen that one. I don't know why anyone wants to look like that, but apparently you do. But as soon as you put that filter on, all people see is the picture in that context because we've run it through a filter. And a cognitive bias is so, sort of like that. It's sort of like a default filter that causes our brain to become pre-wired to think a certain way or interpret a situation in a certain way, even if it's not completely accurate, which is why two people can have the identical experience with opposite responses to the identical experience. For instance, a boss could give feedback to an employee the exact feedback to two employees. And the one person hears the feedback and says, gets done, he's like, you know what? I hate this place. That guy's a jerk. He takes me for granted. He doesn't understand what I bring to this company. He's not fair. He's not reasonable. All he tells me is all I'm doing wrong. The other guy's like, that was amazing. I think I'm going to double my profits this, this term. That was such great insight. Same facts, different response. Because it's not the facts it's the filter. There's a great story in, in Numbers chapter 13 that sort of demonstrates this really well. And if you recall, uh, Moses and the Israelites were about to take the land that God had promised them, the promised land. And, but before they go in, Moses decides to send 12 spies to look over the land and understand how do we want to go about this. Well, those 12 spies had exactly the same experience, but they did not all share the same reaction. 
As a matter of fact, as they're entering in, they go through this valley that's called the Valley of Eshkol, and Eshkol means cluster. And in that valley, they, it's called cluster because uh, they, they, they cut one cluster of grapes, and that cluster of grapes was so enormous, it took two men with a pole on their shoulders. They draped the grapes and pomegranates and figs and all this stuff on this to bring back to show people how amazing this was. This is one cluster. took two people to carry. They get back, and they're like, look at the fruit. And then 10 of the 12 say this. Definitely, it is a land that flows with milk and honey, but no way. Because the people are huge and powerful, and their cities are fortified. It says, the land devours people. 10 of the 12 had that report. Two of the 12, Joshua and Caleb, had a completely different experience. Now, the reason these 10 had this report was because they believed taking the land depended on their own might, their own strength, their human power, their human strength, like we just read about, not the divine strength that God offers our brains. But Joshua and Caleb believed in the divine power. They believed in God's power. They were told to take the land. And here's what they said. We should go up and take possession of the land for we can probably, nope, we can certainly do it. Same exact experience, wildly different responses. It's not the facts that were different. It's the filter. And it's not just the filter. It's also the frame, the way you frame a picture. You ever done this? You take a picture, you put a new frame on it, it looks like a brand new picture. The way you frame what you're experiencing is also important. I want you to, here's, a, here's a good example. I want you to look at this video, which I think demonstrates framework. Take a look at this. How many of you missed the gorilla? <laughs> About half. How many of you didn't notice the curtain changing color? <laughs> How many of you didn't notice the player leave the game? Right. This is a great example. Because I knew you've all seen that other one, right? Here, this is a great example of framing. You were framed. They told you, look at this, and that's what you look at, and that's what you saw. So framing is super important. Let me give you a simple definition of what framing is. It means creating a, way, a different way of looking at a situation or a relationship by changing its meaning. I want you to rewind the beginning when I said, hey, think about a situation in your life where you're gravitating toward negative thoughts. Reframing is beginning to build a new way of thinking and understanding what that situation is. You know, you may wake up and think to yourself, oh, today's going to be a terrible day. Oh, I've got to meet with that one company. They never buy anything. <laughs> and that guy's a jerk, too. I hate that guy. I hate those people. It's, oh, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be a hard day today. Or you say, okay, today's the day. I'm meeting with that company. Today, I'm landing the deal. <laughs> it's going to happen. I'm going to prove to my boss they will buy something. And because you've pre-framed your thinking differently, you will likely have a different day. Our brain tells us that once we've framed something this is amazing, you are more likely to find what you framed than something else. And that works like this. Derek Murphy right here. If I think Derek loves me, if I think he's just on my team and he, I'm, I'm, I'm with him one day and he does this thing and it's really cool, I'm like, see, there it was. I knew this guy loves me. He's such a great guy. 
If I think Derek doesn't like me, when I'm around him, you know, doing something, then he does something, and I'm, there it is, see? I, I knew he didn't like me. Because my brain has already framed something, and that's what I'm looking to substantiate. If we're not careful, by the way, we can begin to frame God in a negative light where we frame him for all the bad things that are happening. Rather than looking for the goodness of God in the day, we look for his disappointment. And how is he going to let us down? How is he going to fail me one more time today? And here's what you know. You can't control what happens to you, but you can control the way you frame it. You can't control what happens to you, but you can control the way you frame it. You know, maybe you woke up, you've had this day, you wake up one day and you're like, you know, maybe you have this every day. And you think to yourself, I just thought by this point in my life, I would be happily married, but I'm not married. I'm not happy. I wasn't happy when I was married. I thought I'd be further along in my career, but I feel stuck in a dead-end job. I thought I had my finances together. I thought I'd travel more. I thought I could be in a certain ministry and be effective in this. But what I'm experiencing life is far different from what I hoped for. And if you've ever had that thought, I want you to understand something that's really important. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of the Apostle Paul who gets it. Let me tell you about the Apostle Paul real quick. Paul was the leader of leaders in the Jewish faith and on the rise. As a matter of fact, he was probably the lead purifier of the Jewish faith through persecuting the Christians. He didn't want to allow them to live. And when I say persecuting, I mean he was killing Christians to keep them and keep the faith from growing. And as he's rising the ranks, becoming more powerful and more in charge, He has this tremendous, life-changing experience with the God of the universe and becomes a member of the very faith he's trying to snub out and becomes a leader to the point where he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And as this happens, he hears a call from God that tells him, you've got to go to Rome and you've got to share the gospel because he knew if he got to Rome and he could share the gospel effectively there and the people in Rome would get the gospel, it was a launching pad for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth effectively. But what happens when he gets to Rome is not that. He gets to Rome. He finds himself in jail. Every eight hours, he's chained to a guard that changes, possibly awaiting death, Now, if, if Paul wanted to, he could have framed this a few different ways. And if we were to read Philippians 1, 12, and 13 from the NWV, which is the new Winer's version, he would have said this. <laughs> I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me really sucks. As a result of the hell I've been through, I'm dropping out of my Life Together group, and I'm never coming back to church. Right? That's what he could have said. But that's not what he... By the way, if you're on Amazon looking, there is no New Winers version. You're like, dude, that's a good version. I like that one. <laughs> made up thing. Greg Rochelle made it up, not me. So anyway, that's not what he said, though. 
what he said was this when we look at the verse. He says, and I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm chained to a guard, and every eight hours I get fresh meat, and they know it's coming too. And he goes on. He says, and because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here, he could have said, even in spite of my imprisonment, not even all the believers believe. No, he says, most of the believers now, because of my imprisonment, have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It looks really, really bad if you frame it one way, but it's really good because the very thing he had hoped for, that the advancement of the kingdom of God would happen, is happening as a result of him being in jail. I don't want to be in jail, but I sure hope if I do, I can think like that. And I hope I don't get fired, too, if I go to jail. But anyway, <laughs> so let's talk about how to reframe our stories and relationships. Because here's what I know about all of our lives. We all have stuff. We have husband stuff. We have wife stuff. We have ex stuff, kid stuff. Anxiety stuff, COVID stuff, mask stuff, vac stuff, fear stuff, financial stuff, school stuff, mean people stuff, schedule stuff, anxiety stuff, shame stuff, regret stuff, and we have God stuff. And God stuff isn't separate from the other stuff. It's right in the middle with it. We have to battle through our beliefs and how the way we're framing what we believe about God in the light of all the anxieties and fears and joys and everything that's going on in our life. So, as we close today, I want to talk about how to reframe all the stuff in our lives that keep us from being in the center of God's will and the center of God's desire for our life. I want to give you three specific tools. Again, these are Craig, Craig Rochelle's tools. Three specific tools that I think are really practical that can really help us out. And the three tools are this. The first one, if you're a note taker, write this down or whatever. Here it is. Thank God for what didn't happen. Thank God for what didn't happen. He tells a story. He tells a story. It's a pretty good story of this girl who comes home one day and she says, Mom, Dad, I need to talk with you. Can you sit? You, I want you to sit down. <laughs> this is kind of a big deal. I need to share this story with you. And um, I'm going to ask that you just let me talk and say everything I've got to say before you respond. Okay? Will you do that for me? So they say, Okay. And they sit down and she says, Well, um, a little while ago, I was out one night and um, I was drinking and I was drinking probably more than I should have. I met a guy, but as a result of all the drinking I was doing, we uh, ended up leaving together, and we went back to my place, and we hooked up. Well, I'm expecting a child. And, uh, well, the good news is he's almost off parole. <laughs> and when his uh, rehab is done, he thinks he'll be able to get a job, and he'd consider marrying me. But since he can't afford it right now, we're just going to move in together. And then she stood there, looked at her parents, whose jaws were on the floor. She said, well, actually, 
that's not true, but I did get a D on my biology test, and I want you to know it could have been a whole lot worse. <laughs> Thank God for what didn't happen. Step one. The second one is practice reframing. And reframing is just deciding how you will frame the situation before you engage in it. And our thoughts and our minds, you know, the frames that we have often shape what we experience. You know, this is going to be a terrible meeting. This is going to be a great meeting. I'm so excited for tonight. Uh, I, regret, I hate this. So think before you're in the middle of the situation, how are you going to frame the situation you're in? The third one is this. So first, thank God for what didn't happen. Second, practice pre-framing. And the third is this. Look for God's goodness. And this is important because I promise you, you always find what you're looking for. Again, when you're looking for something good, you'll find it. When you're looking for something bad, I promise you'll find it. What's a vulture do? Looks for dead stuff all day. Finds it. What's a hummingbird do? Looks for sweet nectar from flowers. Finds it. What will you look for? Will you look for God's perceived failure in your life? Or will you look for his goodness? You know, you could make the point pretty easily that this last year and a half, last two years, is the worst years, the worst years ever. And I was thinking about my own life, and I don't mean to say mine is worse than yours. It's not. This these last few years haven't particularly been <laughs> different from me, but I will tell you, here's what's, here, let me just share with you, if I wanted to argue to say these have been the last, the worst years of my life. We had the, I don't know if you know about this thing, it's called COVID, coronavirus, it's been going on. And uh, so remember we all got quarantined? Well, right after, right, beginning of March, remember the earthquake? Yeah, that broke some pipes in our basement, so we were flooded. So not only were all six of us doing work from our home, but we didn't have our downstairs. That wasn't awesome, I guess. And then we, K2, quarantined, and we were only, remember the online-only services? Oh, those were kind of hard to do. And then uh, you know, we started meeting again together, and we have people who think we should do this with masks and people who think we shouldn't do this with masks and so on and so forth. It kind of be becomes challenging. And, and uh, by the way, we moved, I don't know if you guys knew this, we moved buildings <laughs> in four weeks. It was pretty challenging. And all the while, my mother-in-law is dying. from pancreatic cancer. That was also not awesome. And in July, she passed. But... During that time, <clears throat> we were able to go back to Michigan. We were able to go back to Michigan more times in the last few months of her life than we have probably in the last three or four years. 
And every single one of my kids got to spend a weekend with grandma. And Susie got to spend the last six weeks being the caregiver for her mom who cared for her her entire life. And I know this. If she could trade those six weeks for anything else, she would not do it. Was it really the worst? See, we don't interpret God's goodness through our circumstances. We interpret our circumstances through God's goodness. And the only reason Joshua and Caleb could have a different perspective than the other 10 spies was because the filter and the framework that they chose to view God through was different from everyone else. And the only reason the apostle Paul could say, fresh meat every eight hours, is because he had a different framework in his head. Because you cannot control what happens to you, but you can control the framework through which you view things. So I'm gonna invite the band, because we're gonna enter into a time of musical worship to close our service today. But I just wanna remind you of a couple things. As you're trying to reframe the things in your life, remember that thing I asked you to think about at the beginning? As you're thinking about that experience, How can you reframe the experience with God's perspective to understand that something greater just may be going on in your life? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his pleasing, good, and perfect will. That only happens if our framework and our filters are right. So this week, as you go home, I want you to think about that thing you identified at the beginning of the service. I want you to take it to God, and I want you to say, God, what do I need to see about this situation? How can I view this with a framework that gives me hope rather than despair? How can I view this with your strength in mind rather than my own. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for who you are. And in spite of the things that we're struggling through in our lives, you offer us everything we need for life and godliness, every single thing. But if we refuse to lean into what you offer us and try and live it on our own, we're going to be frustrated, sad, angry, negative, and we're not going to have the life you called us to do. So God, please bring us into the life you've designed for us. Lead us and guide us. Change our hearts, change our filters, change our frames. We ask this in your name. Amen.